0: Having trouble with your phone? Try turning it off and turning it back on again. You'd be surprised how often that works. I know my hair is nice. Don't touch it. My name is Benjamin Wilson Kent, not Pastor Wayne's son. I just do video production and I don't know how to fix anything. Spilled Gatorade all over your brand new MacBook? Here's the number for Apple support. Here in student life, We appreciate people like Heather Vance, who give us their graphics on Thursday afternoon. Unlike Josh, who maybe gives it to us before we start. Be a Heather, not a Josh. Fred Sowerman is the best boss ever. There's no one I would rather work with. Thinking about donating your old Windows 95 PC to the church? Thanks. But no thanks. Five-nine isn't short. It's average. That has nothing to do with tech, but I wanted you to know, it's average, not short. Skinny jeans do not belong in the tech booth. I'm looking at you, Fred. Yes, we all like Star Wars. Star Wars is not for nerds. Star Trek is for nerds. I've actually been writing some Star Wars fan fiction starring myself and that sounded cooler in my head. If you see your local tech staff member volunteer today, give them a hug, because they probably need it. Just don't hug me. Thank you. Yeah, okay, and you turn it off and back on, and it's working now. Okay, bye, Wayne. you thank the tech team for all the work they do for us, please? In both auditoriums, for us to, uh, if you will, produce or uh, manage, however you want to say it, uh, create worship services for us each weekend, it takes 12 people to manage that. People up in the video booth who you never see, probably people in, here in the West Auditorium running sound and lights and everything, and people in the East Auditorium doing the same. So on behalf of our congregation, even though the tech team made their own video, we want to say thank you for all the work you do for us. We're very glad for that. And if you'd like to join in that endeavor, we'd be glad to hear from you, and uh, you can join all the Star uh, Trek fans. Star Wars. Star Wars. <laughs> Anyways, for those of you who are unfamiliar with our congregation, perhaps you're a guest with us today, let me introduce myself. My name is Wayne, and I'm very glad you're with us here on this Memorial Day weekend, both here in the West Auditorium and to those who are in the East Auditorium very glad you're here. We're looking to uh, say, take some time at Scripture today. We're going to look in the book of Matthew, which is this far through the Bible. I'd invite you to open up your Bible today. If you don't have one with you, there's one in the pew rack in front of you. Maybe you have it on a smartphone or something or other. In the Easter term, there's some po- folk moving around with Bibles right now. And you're going to need to keep it open because we're going to go move very slowly through Matthew, a portion of Matthew 12 today. And to grab a hold of what I'm bringing to you, you're going to need to be able to refer down and see it. So get your Bible out, even if it's not your regular habit, and let's see what we can do together today. All right, so while you're looking for Matthew 12, uh, just a a brief note that perhaps you're aware that Leslie and I were in Italy last weekend, uh, of all places, right? We were invited to go there and be part of a wedding uh, from a young man from our church who was marrying a lovely Irish young lady, and they chose to get married in this wonderful, fantastic setting in Florence, Italy. It was stunningly beautiful, and we got there, in the afternoon, and you know, this terrace overlooking the city, and the, it was beautiful weather, kind of like weather of yesterday, and just, it went, was wonderful. So since, our, because that was Thursday night, I knew I wasn't preaching this here this last weekend, and Josh did a great job and all, I, I, I said to Liz, let's, let's take a few extra days, since we'd never been to Italy before, let's go to Rome. So we got on a, a train, and we went from Florence to Rome, and we spent Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night there, returning home on Monday evening. And uh, we toured the Vatican on Saturday. Uh, the Pope says hi, by the way. <laughs> Not real. Well, maybe he does say hi, I don't know, but he didn't say it to us, nor do you. But nonetheless, actually, I went to talk to him and tell him what I needed to say to President Trump since he was arriving there just a few days after. No, we didn't do that either, right? So here's the truth. Here's the truth. We did um, stay in a very small, and I need to emphasize the word small, I think, a small Airbnb apartment. Do you know what Airbnb is? It's an internet site that um, if you have a home that you're going to be, you you say, I'm going to be gone from, from it for a few days, you can rent out your house while you're gone. And so we stayed in someone's apartment this tiny place in the heart of the old city of Rome where you, you know, to get a hotel, there would have been astronomical, but by staying in these people's home, you could, you know. And, um, did I say it was small? It was very small. Like, to get into the bed, you had to go like this between the bed and the wall, and was a small bedroom, a bathroom, kitchenette, a dining room, and that was about it. And it was a lovely terrace. that was about four feet wide, enough room for one chair, face, you know, two chairs facing each other. And it was probably eight feet long. And had a, a concrete wall on the front of it, because we were six stories up. Um, so it had a concrete wall about that high, and then some railing, and it was lovely. And, and we arrived Friday night of last weekend. About midnight, last Friday night, going into early Saturday morning, Rome had a weather event that apparently happens very, very rarely, and that is they had a huge thunderstorm that dumped inches of water on the city. Now, here's what happens. To get into that terrace, you had to step over the sill of the dining room into the terrace, and then there's a cement wall right in front of you. Unbeknownst to us, the drain, sixth floor drain of the terrace was clogged. The rain started coming down at one o'clock. Leslie woke me up and said, there's running water. Yes, the water in the terrace was about this deep and was coming under the sill in the dining room and pouring into the dining room. Now, one of the things that you do that's crucial, if you will, or what you sign off when you rent an Airbnb house or apartment is you agree that you will treat the house as if it's your own. So what do you do when the water is pouring in at one o'clock? There's no bellhop to call and say, I want a different room, please. And there's no way to clear on the drain. We could I wasn't going to go out there in that electrical storm. The water's about that deep. So here we are with, um, uh, with no, no mop or bucket or anything like that. All we had were bath towels and a garbage can. So we're you know, mopping things up with our bath towels, and and it took about an hour or so. Well, every time the wind would blow and that door would open out to the terrace, things would blow around a little bit, and there was this lamp above the dining room table that was on a swinging arm, and at one point, the wind blew it up against the wall, which turns out it was very fortunate, because... That was Friday night. We kind of put the room back together, but on Sunday night, as we're getting to leave the next morning, we thought, we got to get the room, that dining room, all back together. And so we put the table back where it belonged, and I reached out to bring that lamp, otherwise now affectionately known as the Death Star lamp from Star Wars. I reached out for it and got the jolt of a lifetime. The thing wasn't grounded properly. 220, right up my arm. I mean, I don't know that I've ever had that sort of event happen. I've been zapped before. But I began to think, what if we'd been standing in that three-quarters of an inch of water and that had occurred two nights previously? Fortunately, the wind had blown it up against the wall. So, um, I would have been dead in the water, (laughs) so to speak. (laughs) So, anyway, I reached out to the apartment owners and said, okay, so we've had this little dilemma. We need towels. They sent us towels. Uh, you should clean out the drain before this happens again. Uh, come to find out they put a potted plant on top of it. That was part of the problem. And I said, by the way, there's this Death Star light, this lamp that's going to kill somebody. It was fortunate it didn't kill us. And, and, and as I'm typing this email to them, I said, by the way, given all our labor and our trouble, would you consider, you know where I'm going, right? would you consider some sort of refund or some sort of discounted rate? There were emails back and forth about the towels and about the drain and so forth and so on, but nothing whatsoever about we'll give you some money back. We got on the plane Monday morning, arrived in Philadelphia Monday afternoon, and I was kind, it was kind of under my skin. You know, <laughs> Somebody could have died. The next people moving in, it's a problem. You know, and plus, we did all that mopping up without any resources. Finally, Monday night, Leslie says, Wayne, give it some grace. Let it go. We did the right thing. You're supposed to care for the house as if it's your own. We cared for the house as if it was our own. Grace will cover it. And I wanted to go on about rules and inconvenience and struggle and potential death. I mean, grace is okay as long as it doesn't try to kill you right? But she was right. So I finally said, okay, we'll let it go. Let it go. Now for those of you who are married today, don't you hate it when your spouse is clearly more spiritual than you are, particularly if you're a pastor? (laughs) How do we manage grace? How does it work in our lives? And when do we? When should we put that in play? Should we just say to Airbnb, "It's okay, let it go"? I had to get to that place, and Jesus had some things to say about that. Let's see if we could today look at some grace matters with Jesus, beginning in Matthew chapter twelve. Guests, we are making our way through the whole book of Matthew for some thirty weeks. It's taking to do this, and we're in Matthew twelve. We started back in February. We're going slowly. You'll need to read along with us. Okay. Jesus is with his disciples, and we read in verse twelve. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, he and began to pick heads of grain and eat them. As they're walking through the fields, they're literally stripping the the you know the heads of kernels or whatever off the off or the beans, whatever the case may be, off the off the off the stalk and walking on. When the Pharisees, religious leaders, saw this, they said to him, "Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath." So. Before we go too far, I don't want to assume that everyone understands what's about to happen here. So let me see if I can unpack it just a bit. There's about to be an issue. If you will, there's about to be an argument between some Jewish religious leaders and Jesus. And the topic surrounds Jesus' understanding of the Sabbath. Pastor Josh brought some of this to you last weekend. And what's going on here is some 3,000 years or so previously, the Bible tells us that, if you will, God and the Israelites struck a bargain. Here was the bargain. That God would provide the people of Israel with land and prosperity and blessings. And in response, the Israelites would choose to live, uh, take on lifestyles that honored God. And the way in which that honoring was to be codified, if you will, is that in the Old Testament, there's a list of do's and don'ts. We call it the Ten Commandments. There are ten things to do or not to do that were to govern the way in which the people of Israel lived their lives and honored God. And you know some of them like make God number one in your life, or don't steal, no sex outside of a heterosexual marriage, or be honest in conversation with one another, don't lie in your life or in your conversation, among others. And then one of those is keep the Sabbath holy. What's that? It's one thing for you to say, no lying, that's pretty straightforward. But what's the Sabbath? What do you have? How do you keep it holy? Well, In Jewish faith, the seventh day of each week, beginning at sunset Friday through to sunset Saturday, is called the Sabbath. The Sabbath begins when you can look up in the sky, and if there are no clouds, at the moment you can see three stars, that it's dark enough to see three stars, that's the beginning of the Sabbath. And it goes all the way through to the next day, Saturday night, when you can see the three stars again. During that period of time, you weren't to work. There was to be no work done during that 24-hour period. The model for that is found in the book of Genesis when God works uh, to create in creation for seven days. But six days he works and then on the seventh day he rests and enjoys it all. And so in Jewish synagogues all across the world in our time, you'll discover worship services on Friday night after dusk and then maybe some more on Saturday and the family worshiping God and resting the earliest Christians who were primarily Jewish, they followed that pattern. They would go to Shabbat the Sabbath services on Friday night, maybe again on Saturday, and there would be Jewish worship, if you will, and then they would follow that up with Christian worship on Sunday, and the Christian worship was to uh, declare the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He'd been resurrected on the first day of the week, Sunday, and so when churches today have meetings and worship services on Sunday, we're following that pattern of why we choose Sunday versus the Sabbath as the Jewish faith does. So, in Jewish culture, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And work includes preparing food. It all has to be done before the evening of the Sabbath begins. And yet, here's what you have. Apparently, Saturday morning, afternoon, we don't know, the disciples are walking through grain fields that they don't own, and they're picking grain and they're eating it. It is considered that they are preparing food. Now, we would think, well, isn't that stealing? Walking, I mean, imagine walking through the fields of central Illinois come September or October and say, I'll take this corn and that corn and I'll take some beans here. And, you know, if you go to somebody's apple orchard and you eat the apples, you go. we would consider that's not the way you do it. But in Jewish culture, it was a practice that Moses had instructed the people to do. In Deuteronomy 23, we read this, that if you enter your neighbor's vineyard... You may eat all the grapes you want, but don't put it in your your basket. In other words, what you can hold in your hands, you can have. If you enter your neighbor's grain field, this is the disciples, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to their standing grain. What you can hold, you can have. I've seen this in play. Maybe you have at the grocery store. (laughs) You've seen this, right? Somebody's walking through the produce section... And they reach out and they grab a grape. Have you seen this? And I always want to go, is that stealing? Because it feels like it's stealing to me. I mean, after all, they taste the grape. Now, are they going to go back and buy that bunch of grapes? Or is it just a little snack on the way down to the, you know? Well, are they going to then go down to the dairy section and open up the fridge and go, I'll take some of that milk and wrap that plastic thing off. <laughs> no, nope, I'm not buying that. Are they going to go to the cereal aisle and open up a box of Count Chocula and dig their hand? No, I'm not into chocolate cornflakes. Is the guy going to go to the men's section and rip open a pack of underwear and say, yeah, that about fits. It doesn't work that way, does it? And yet, why is it that it seems fair game with the grapes in the produce section? After all, if you say, well, I'm just testing it to see if I'm going to eat it, or if I'm going to buy a whole bunch, you then go buy the whole bunch. Are you going to get on the scale so that you can say, okay, I need to take the grape that's in my belly and pay for that as well? It always feels like stealing to me. I don't know about you, but I've seen it on a number of occasions. And yet, in ancient Jewish culture, you could eat whatever you could put in your hand. So the religious leaders who are upset, they're not upset with what the disciples are doing, that they're eating these, this kernel of grain. They're upset, their beef is this, they don't like the fact that by doing this and stripping that stalk of that grain, they are preparing food on the Sabbath when you're not supposed to work. So what's going to happen? Look, the the Pharisees say, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath, and so what does Jesus say? Haven't you read, and he's going to give two things where this law that the Pharisees have might be problematic. Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on the Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? What's going on? Well, a thousand years before this event, there's a story Um, in scripture that talks about when King David, the king of of Israel, takes his men into the temple and they're out of food and they eat the showbread while it's still warm. They eat the bread that is reserved exclusively for priests. That was the rule. And yet, in that moment, you could say that grace and food for the men were more important than the rules. Or Jesus is saying, oh, think about your priests. You have a temple in Jerusalem. You have synagogues in every town. And somebody goes in there on the Sabbath, and it is their job to lead you in worship and to have priestly duties. And they are actually paid to do that. So by virtue of being paid to work in the temple or in the synagogue, are they not working on the Sabbath? Aren't they violating the rule of no work? Keep reading on. Verse 6, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. This is, there's something staying in front of you that's more important than rules. And here it is. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not, have, you would not have condemned the innocent. My disciples are innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is proclaiming that he is the one who exercises authority over the rules and regulations that govern the Sabbath day. As such, he's proclaiming to the world, especially to the legalistic Pharisees. He's saying, I'm greater than the law, because as God in the flesh, he's the author of the laws. See, the Pharisees knew that they were unable to keep all the laws. There was some point where they were going to break one of the Ten Commandments. They were going to lie. They were going to be envious. You're not supposed to be. One of the Ten Commandments is don't lust, don't have envy, and so forth and so on. So they knew that at some point they were going to break the, the law, if you will. They also knew that when it came to the Sabbath, they didn't exactly know what it meant to be make the Sabbath holy. So they actually had a a, a codification that included 39 different categories of rules that you weren't allowed to break on the Sabbath. It wasn't that they were in scripture; they had made them up. And thus they were making themselves lords over the people. But as creator, Jesus, God in the flesh, was the original Lord of the Sabbath. And he had the authority to overrule the Pharisees' traditions and regulations because he had created the Sabbath, and the creator is always greater than the creation. So the Pharisees are presented with this problem. What should we do? And Jesus gives them the answer. I mean, you can catch what they were supposed to do. You can catch the meaning of this, under, of this setting by understanding Jesus' quote in verse 7. He quotes Hosea a couple number of centuries before. He says, If you'd known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would have condemned the innocent. Mercy versus sacrifice. What's more important, in other words? Rules or grace? Can you have both? I mean, they had all sorts of rules. There are all sorts of sacrifices that they made for the Sabbath day. There are all kinds of sacrifices that Jewish people, who are Orthodox particularly, continue to make for the Sabbath day. For example, if you go to Israel today, if you walk into an apartment building or a hotel, if you were to visit Israel this coming week, and you're there on Friday evening through Saturday evening, did you know that the elevators in any building are programmed so that as you walk up to them, the door will open and it will open at every floor. You may step in on the ground floor and you may want to go to six, but you don't push six because in the mind of an Orthodox Jew, pushing six is working. So consequently, the elevators open at every floor because that way they don't have to push a button. In an Orthodox household, the, uh, all the electrical appliances and the lights are all on timers so that beginning Friday evening through Saturday evening, they all come on automatically. And if by some chance your timer doesn't work correctly, you can go across the street and invite your neighbor who might be unorthodox to come over and flick the light switch up for you because that action is considered working. Now, we go, well, that's just stupid. Well, no, it's not. It's part of their culture. It's part of who they are. It's how they understand spirituality. And We have to, we have to let that rest right there. But I would ask without being critical or, you know, if you will, damning about it, I would ask this question. Does it sound restful? It sounds sacrificial, absolutely. But does it sound graceful? I mean, I, appreciate, I absolutely appreciate the intensity of the spirituality. I wish Christians, that we would consider, how can we honor God in everything we do, including flipping a light switch? But Jesus is saying right here, that grace is more important than man-made rules. Now, Jesus didn't nullify the rules or the sacrifices, and and he's not saying that rules should simply be disregarded. However, what he's saying is that as a follower of Jesus, looks at the rules and asks God, God, can you give me some spirit-led discernment about how I extend grace before I extend judgment? It's not that judgment disappears, but how does grace work in con- con- concert with that? And strangely, sadly, in uh, what I would call a weird, ironical way, I suspect that Christians sometimes we are more prone to choose rules versus grace. Because rules are easy. When there's a rule, don't do this or do this, and, we, and you, you disobey the rule, then we know this judgment. But grace is way harder to figure out how to do, and so, Ironically, we live under an understanding of grace covering our sins, but we're very way too quick to extend, to our, way too quick to pass judgment on others. Uh, here's a case in point: in the news this week, this is graduation season, right? Maybe you're invited to some grad parties, uh, or have been to some already. We've got some on our calendar, and you know, kids are graduating from high school. One person is graduating from high school is a young lady from Heritage Christian Academy in Hagerstown, Maryland. It's a Christian school. Her name is Maddie Runkles. Her story has made a lot of press of late. The Washington Post says that she's a 4.0 student who has attended the, um, the school since she was in elementary school, beginning in 2009. But in January of this year, this senior in high school learned that she was pregnant. She informed the school. Pretty quickly, the school said you're going to be suspended, you are no longer going to continue your role as student body president, and you're going to have to finish the rest of the school year at home. After some debate, the school shifted on that and they said, well, you're allowed to finish the school year with your friends here at school, but when it comes to graduation, you will not be allowed to walk across the stage and receive your diploma that way. Her parents say this decision is unfair, that she's being punished more harshly than other people, other students who may have broken the rules in other ways. And in a letter to try and quell the riot that has been taken over the I mean, I read this in the Washington Post. So, the, so to, to quell that riot, this past Tuesday, the principal, David Hobbs, sent out a letter to all the f- families and parents of the school and said this regarding Maddie Runkles. She is being disciplined not because she is pregnant, but because she was immoral. And the best way to love her right now is to hold her accountable for her morality that began this situation. Now, sometimes when we look at the Pharisees, we go, oh, there's, that's ages ago. And we're not like that anymore. But are we or are we not? I mean, has the school handled this situation in the best way possible? I don't know. I know a lot about biblical morality. I know what's right and what's wrong. I know what a biblical lifestyle would say regarding sexual purity. There's no debate about that matter. I'm thankful that Maddie Runkles has not added to the problem by choosing an abortion. She could have chosen to abort the baby and kept it all quiet, and she would have walked, and there would have been no discussion. I get all that. Is there more to the story? Absolutely, there's got to be more to the story, right? And are we in a position to judge this setting with any accuracy and full insight? No. There's, there's more than what we know. But there's something unsettling about it all, isn't there? How would you handle the setting if you were made principal for a day last Tuesday? If you were the principal in the school last Tuesday and you knew you had to write a letter to the family and to Maddie, what would you do? there's tension there isn't there that's what's going on in the Bible here there's this tension between where's grace where are the rules how does it play out Jesus says I desire mercy more than sacrifice how do you choose mercy over sacrifice because I'll be honest we have settings within our own congregation that aren't far removed and We've got got to figure out how do we manage the rules and yet present great mercy and grace. To those listening here today who you say, Wayne, you're just a little too close to home. I get it. I want you to hear that we've got to figure out the rules and mercy. In that light, how can we as individuals or how do we as a congregation choose mercy over sacrifice? Some ways to think about that. May I suggest that if you want to choose mercy over sacrifice, you have to start by focusing on your own grace relationship with God. Because here's what Christians know. The followers of Jesus know that we've received grace because somewhere along the line we learned that we are sinners, that we don't have our act together, that we learned there is this call to purity and law, and that Call has never been nullified by God. We are guilty of breaking God's laws. We are sinners who rely on God's grace via that grace coming to us in Jesus Christ. If you will, we know of two sides of God, this calling and this demand that he makes regarding holiness and sinlessness, and we know of our own the word would be depravity in that regard, and yet the second side of God, we experience his grace covering us in Jesus Christ, covering the messes of our lives. And here's what we've got to figure out how to do, and that is that God's best people have to be more grace-filled and grace-giving than others simply because we've received it. That's got to be the way in which we act. And sometimes when I hear Christians ranting on and you know, carrying on about the sinners around them, I question if those followers of Jesus fully understand the grace that has come their way. Next, in order to live like that, with our own grace, understanding, in play, we have to choose grace for others as a default mode. And it's hard for us. We want life to be fair. We want want it to have a level playing field, if you will, and then we can make judgments far more easily. For example, if, if there were two high school teams about to play baseball this afternoon, Suppose the, suppose the ruling agency that's in charge of all the baseball teams in, in, in the state said, well, high school number one, you're allowed to have 27 players on your team. High school number two, you're only allowed 11 players on your team. Wouldn't high school number two say, hey, this isn't fair. You're making the wrong judgment call. We want, the ju- we want judgment to be equal and easy and, and, and plain and straight. We want the equations of life to be fair. Live right, and you'll get ahead. Live poorly, and you should experience punishment. But Jesus said he preferred mercy over sacrifice. How does that work? Well, there's a clue in our scripture, if you'll keep reading with me, verse 9. You've got Jesus and the disciples and the Pharisees out in the fields. In verse 9, going on from that place, he went into the synagogue. A man with a shriveled hand was there. We don't know why his hand was shriveled. Maybe it had been in an accident. Maybe it was from in utero. Maybe um, he'd had a stroke. We don't know, but something's wrong with this hand that doesn't work, okay? Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Why are they doing that? It's a trick question, because by this time, what is Jesus known for? Jesus is known for going into towns and villages and preaching and healing. In fact, His band of brothers is actually making a little money on this. There are people supporting them. There are people saying, here's some funds to get to the next town. In essence, they are being paid to heal and to preach. Not a lot, we don't think, but nonetheless, there's money involved. And thus, Jesus has a job of healing. The Pharisees know this, and they want to know, are you going to do your job on the Sabbath? Are we going to catch you? He said to them, if any of you, one of you has... A sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? They're going back to an Old Testament practice that it was allowed, that on the Sabbath if an was life was in danger, you could pull it out of the pit. You could save the life. How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the others. as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. They've now caught Jesus in the trap. He has actually broken their law. Now they have reason to crucify him. But Jesus says, you won't know how to choose mercy over sacrifice? Do good. In fact, he says do good on the Sabbath. Care and heal and bring life and goodness into the lives of people who are withered around you. This weekend, this Sabbath moment, if you will. We've got a restful weekend, right? Here this weekend, can you do some good in the lives of other people? Settle, yes, into your graceful relationship with God and Jesus Christ, and then mirror that grace on the part of God working through you on behalf of strangers and friends and family, because who knows? Next slide, guys. Who knows? Your grace just might bring healing to somebody who has a really withered soul. This day. Not just this week in front, but this day. Can you do something that's going to care for someone else? Because then grace flows through you. And Again, I'll go back to that situation with the apartment in Rome. I've learned about that this week. You know, Um, (laughs) I'm convinced that Death Star was out to make me dead. I'm also convinced that when the door opened and it swung that way, that that wind must have been from God. And I'm also convinced that Leslie was very wise in saying, Wayne, just let it go. Let it go. Think about what's happened. We've had a few days off. We've seen Florence and Rome. We had a tremendous wedding. We've experienced beauty all around. Don't push for any rebate. Ref- just, just, it was, we took care, we did what we said we were going to do. We said we'd take care for that place as if it was our own. And so I listened, I agreed, I decided, I decided, I guess, in some ways, grudgingly at first, Grace is going to win. Monday night, walk away from it. I'm not sending any more emails because that keyboard had been pretty hot. It moved pretty quickly. But Grace had to be my default mode. That was Monday night. We've never heard back from the house owners since. Okay? Never heard from them again. But I did get an email. From an administrator at Airbnb who had heard from the homeowners. And this is what was waiting for me, not Monday night, but Tuesday morning in an email. The hosts of your Corona Center Cozy Penthouse in Amazing Terrace, it wasn't all, it was very cozy, they sent you $108. Ha! You should receive the money in your account for this reservation within five to seven business days. Now I'm really messed up. Now I'm really messed up. But it doesn't get any better than this, right? I'd worked in my heart to extending grace, and then grace apparently showed up in my inbox on Tuesday, and it showed up in my Citibank credit card account on Thursday. Does it get any better than that? I got the best of both worlds. I grew to the place where I allowed grace to flow to me, from me to the owners, and then they graced me back. I gave him grace, they gave me money. I love it. I love it. Does it get any better? Wow. Shazam, bring it on.